Before we get started, a reminder that when you join Wondery Plus, you can listen to Tides of History one week early and ad-free in the Wondery app. Hi, everybody from Wondery. Welcome to another episode of Tides of History. Thanks for joining me. One of the really wonderful things about making Tides is that I get to chat with fascinating people all the time. I'm lucky enough to call some of these wonderful folks my friends, none more so than today's guest. We have spent countless hours over the past dozen or so years drinking beers and talking about history and pretty much everything else under the sun. He is an assistant professor of history at Illinois State University. Prior to that, he was a postdoctoral instructor at Caltech, and he is the author of the new book from the University of Pennsylvania Press, No Wood, No Kingdom, Political Ecology in the English Atlantic. Keith Plymers, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be back on Tides. You are our most frequent guest. You have taken the lead. I love that. I love that. I get a little medal. Or, I do have a t-shirt. So You, you uh, have a t-shirt. We haven't gotten you a- great swag. I think we're out of mugs. I don't think we have mugs anymore, unfortunately, because otherwise that's a thing you could use. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that would be really good. Every day I could just display my dominance as a Tides <laughs> guest uh, via a We're All Peasants mug or something like that. Yeah, something something else that is extremely limited in the number of folks who will actually understand the reference. Yeah, that's what we're that's what we're all about here is in-group signaling. Yep. So first of all, congratulations on the book. I know this has been a long time in the Genesis. Yes. Well, congratulations on your book as well. I have to say, uh, having your copy of yours right next to my copy of mine feels like a culmination of a lot of conversations that began when we were uh, younger and definitely uh, less worldly and sophisticated than we are <laughs> than we are at present. I was definitely smoking more cigarettes. I think I had more hair and we were all a lot younger. <laughs> Yes. Yes. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. I cannot believe. Yeah. It was literally 12 years ago, this coming month that we met for the wow. first time. That was a, Jesus, man, 12 years. <laughs> That's a long time. Um, it really is. So this book was based on your dissertation. So these are ideas that you've been thinking about and percolating on for a really long time now. How does it feel to finally have the finished copy of it in your hands? It feels absolutely amazing <laughs> to have the copy in my hands. And one of the things that was cool about this book, so it started off as part of my dissertation, but the dissertation wasn't just on wood. In the dissertation, I was trying to think about conceptions of nature, and I ended up looking at wood, water, land, and animals. So I ended up thinking sort of across a lot of things and then I was at a workshop in my last year of the PhD, and another historian was commenting on the dissertation and the project as the whole and said, well, you know, this is fine for a dissertation, but it's too many things. You should pick one. And immediately I said, oh, I have to write on wood. And so I dropped a significant chunk of the dissertation, and then for the book, really focused in on that one thing. I expanded the number of places I was looking and ended up looking uh, at Barbados, uh, doing a lot more with England, which I hadn't done at all in the dissertation and then expanded time a bit. And it's very, very cool to sort of see all of that come together 
in one place. Because as you know, when you're writing these things, you're like, ah, chapter, single word document, forget about it. And then when you're doing that final, seemingly endless stage of editing it all, and you're like, I don't ever want to see another typo that I typed ever again, or I'm going to like run face first into a wall just, just to terminate consciousness on this topic. So seeing something that is done is a weird and wonderful feeling. It's a very rare feeling in our particular line of work to ever feel like you have a completed project. Because there's always more that you can do. There's always another round of edits. There's always a chapter that you can add. There's always another archive that you can go to. But I was going to say, like, after having read this, it's tight. It's a tight book. Like, you've got your topic. You're thorough in exploring that topic. And there's, like, no fat in it, which I appreciate. It's a real focused book. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And I got to say, <laughs> it's the hardest part, as you know, just getting things down because like you said there is always so much more um that you can say and i felt like there were a load of opportunities where i had to cut out some passages that i really loved and it's very gratifying to hear that those cuts made sense and were worthwhile oh yeah as much as it always hurts to kill your darling sometimes you got to do it Of all the ways I can think of to spend my rare free time, browsing cars at a car dealership is about the least pleasant. That's what's so great about Vroom. With Vroom, you can buy a car entirely online and have it delivered straight to you so you never have to go to a dealership again. Vroom lets you browse thousands of cars in one place, and you can do it all from wherever you are on your schedule. Plus, when you sell your car on Vroom, you can get an offer in minutes. Vroom is entirely online. So next time you need to buy a car, just grab your phone, go to vroom.com and check out thousands of great cars. One more time, that's vroom, V-R-O-O-M, vroom.com. Attention e-commerce founders, entrepreneurs, side hustlers, marketers, and growth hackers. If you're working round the clock to build your dream e-commerce business, you need an e-commerce marketing platform that works just as hard as you do. That means you need Clavio. With Klaviyo, you'll delight customers and drive revenue at the same time with personalized email and SMS marketing campaigns that you can design and send in minutes. Plus, building a marketing campaign is drag-and-drop easy. You can get started with your first campaign in under an hour and easily build from there with Klaviyo's best-performing templates. To get started with a free trial of Klaviyo, visit klaviyo.com listen. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O dot listen. Okay, this is a book about wood and people's perceptions of wood and trees. But the thing that I want to dig into at the very start and the thing that I, I really enjoyed about your book from the like from the ground up is the emphasis on perception. So the ways in which culture and politics and tradition shape the perception of resources and their availability rather than like objective measures of how much wood do we have? There's, there's a lot that goes into understanding how much wood you have, what uses you should put it to. On a really basic level, why did people in early modern England think so strongly that they were dealing with wood as a scarce resource? Yeah, this is a really good question. And to me, it gets at a number of the changes and actually some of the changes that sort of you got into in your book that you're seeing 
increasing commercialization, that there's states taking new forms, and that when states do take new forms, they do things like say, we should count how much stuff we have and try to figure out how many things we own. And that sounds kind of silly, but one of the things that really tends to produce a lot of scarcity, anxiety, and that I go into in in the first chapter of the book after the introduction is to look at how a number of surveys undertaken by the Crown lead to big anxieties because they send someone out and say, okay, well, we know we have all this land. What's it look like? And then someone will come back and say, oh, there's nothing there. It's all been chewed apart. It's worthless. And then the next person will come back and say, no, no, it looks it looks okay. I mean, we could do better, but it looks fine. Trying to figure out what you have from the perspective of the emerging state here is a huge part of how these natural resource anxieties set in. And while I focus on wood here, around the same point in time, the Elizabethan state sends out people to try to assess quantities of land that they are owed due to sort of receding high water marks or shifting high water marks for rivers and for tide lines. I mean, they're really going out and saying like, all right, let's count up how much stuff we own because they're concerned about royal finances and, and things like that. You know, the, the crunch of credit, that is such a huge part of the story you tell, is in the background to a lot of this because as they are all thinking about credit, They're also trying to think about, well, what are our assets? What are the things that we own? What can we do with them? And the process of learning that is incredibly challenging and mostly frustrating for a lot of the actors involved. And it was just witnessing that confusion and frustration that I think really gave me one of the key insights, I hope, for the whole book which was to not just take scarcity as red. And a number of other historians have pointed to this as well, but I, they've been looking at a few other places. They looked in England a bit as well, but I, I really wanted to get into the practical experience of what it meant to do this and to see, well, how did that shape regulation? How are they trying to get at those things? So they're quite concerned. I think one of the other issues is you have sets of changing uses that are emerging here. So in part, it's a story about bureaucracy and the state and how states are trying to assess what they have and then regulate what they have. But another part of the story is that scarcity emerges out of social conflict. So the 16th century is a time of rising population after the demographic low of the Black Death. And this rising population in England leads to all kinds of anxieties, whether it's about roving vagrants or how to deal with the poor, whether it's about depopulating enclosure and and fears about what's going to happen to all of these people, masterless men running around, all kinds of social anxieties sort of coupled with lots more people. The way this plays out in wooded lands, which are distinctive from forests, which in England is a legal category for land that's controlled by the crown for particular uses around hunting, The anxiety here is that some of those poor people who are displaced go to the forest where they can either squat or exist as extremely poor cottage dwellers, paying kind of nominal rents and things like that. And that all of a sudden you have new uses cropping up. 
So England develops an iron industry, which is going to shift the way that people think about what a woodland is supposed to be and what it's supposed to do. You have intensified naval conflicts, particularly after the Spanish Armada in 1588. And so the crown then starts sending out shipbuilders. And and ship carpenters are incredibly particular people. They can walk through an entire forest, and if they don't see a tree with the exact bend that they're looking for, they'll say, well, there's no nothing worth it. We're surrounded by trees, all of which are trash. Um, not, not worth touching. So you have these different and conflicting uses that are all sort of coming together in response to a number of specific things, whether it's the poor moving into the woods, whether it's landowners looking at wooded land and saying, hey, maybe I can turn this into pasture or Maybe I want to turn this into fuel for ironworks, whether it's the Navy or shipbuilders saying, hey, we're going to use this to produce the very, very specific timber that's required for trees. And so out of this social conflict, people are saying, well, the thing I want is not necessarily available in the way that it used to be, which at times means the number of trees is declining in particular places. But in other cases, it means that the forest hasn't changed, but that there's new demands being put on it or that there's new conflicts that are disrupting older modes of use that, while never totally static or harmonious, had at least settled into a sort of detente or something like that. This is what I really think the scarcity complaints are emerging out of. The state trying to figure out what they have and then competing uses on the ground, so social conflict. I'm aware that this is a loaded term, but do you feel like the state is rationalizing itself in this period? Is that a way of thinking about it? It's funny. I, another historian asked me a few years ago uh, and said, you know, really sort of painted your actors in this book as rational in a number of ways. And one of the conventions of writing early modern history in a lot of cases is, is to ask, well, should we impose sort of modern rationality onto these people? In a number of cases, I, I think when you look at what the state is trying to do, when you look at what the surveyors they send out are trying to do in these places, they're doing things like asking questions that to us, I think, would feel a lot like a rationalizing enterprise. So an example I talk about in the book, in the Forest of Dean, there's a series of inquisitions, so questionnaires that are used to try to assess the forest. And they ask things like, about how much wood per acre could we get per year? How long will it take for things to regrow? If we cut down trees in a particular area, will they regrow in the way that they used to regrow? And at some level, I mean, some of these things seem like basic questions, but if you talk to anyone who does forestry, uh, if you cut it down, will it regrow is by no means a simple question whatsoever. How long will it take to regrow? Will the stuff that regrows look the same? These are really tough questions, and they're trying to come to easy answers for this because these are really short responses to the questions. So that they don't get what they want, but they're trying to come up with a method there to say, how much woodland can we lease out or can we sell off or can we harvest for particular uses? In this case, for an ironworks that's going to be a Royal Ironworks in a given year, and how can we manage it for a kind of long-term steady yield? And that's something that 
I think to a lot of people might feel like the word sustainability. I know that I sort of gesture towards that as sustainability. There's a great historian, Paul Ward, who's written a book on sustainability in the early modern period, which I think people should read. And his story is a little bit more complicated and deals with wood as a particular type of commodity. But I I do think that that vision of long-term management for sustained yield out of a particular piece of land and the sets of questions that go with that, that feels rationalizing in a lot of ways. And I think that's right to ask that particular question. It's fascinating to me. And there's a lot in your book about the management of resources on kind of a basic level. What are people's expectations of wood? What is at least theoretically a renewable resource, but not if you chop down all the trees and then don't replant them, or if you go through and you burn out saplings, then it's not a renewable resource. There are people who have sophisticated ways of using these resources. Like It's not like they're going into a a natural, untouched landscape and deciding we're either going to cut all the trees down or we're not going to cut all the trees down. Like They have ways of picking which particular trees they want for specific things. They have ways of using those trees and thinking about, okay, we want X number to be available in this time. Here's how many we can take now. Like There's a lot of sophisticated stuff that goes into this, and there are very particular modes of thinking about resources and their use, and the idea of like, the obligation to future generations to leave a resource available. That was not something I expected from this period or from these people. I don't know. I mean, that's probably says as much about me as it does about them, but. I really don't think that says a lot about you or or, or anyone who's reading that and says, oh, I'm shocked to see that. I don't think that's a naive response in part because I think a lot of the rhetoric of environmentalism at present. So let me jump to where we are right now at the moment. Quite a lot of it focuses on education, right? If you think about how we've talked about environmental issues from acid rain to deforestation to uh, endangered species, climate change, so much of what we do when we talk about the environment is that we need to raise awareness about topic X, save the polar bears or, or whatever. And then once people are aware, all of a sudden something good is supposed to happen. If you look at this period and if you look at their thinking, it's not an absence of thought that we're dealing with at this time period. Like you said, I think they really are quite sophisticated in the way that they're engaging with this. And in England, but also in in Barbados, you have English people who are talking about beauty and a desire to conserve aestheticized landscapes or to conserve landscapes that they believe have particular social functions and social utility uh, that are going to produce the kind of society they want. Spoiler alert, in many cases, those societies are not ones that many of us in the present would say, yeah, that, that looks great. At best, in England, they were sort of paternalistic and hierarchical. And in the case of Barbados, it was, ah, oh, this is beautiful. Like We can have our plantations that are going to be worked by enslaved people of African descent right next to these beautiful woods. So they had ideas of sort of harmony or, or sort of social cohesion bound up with beautiful landscapes that might justify something about them. It didn't produce sort of the things that we think that kind of thought should. The concern for future generations, and they they always talk about posterity in England, the obligation of posterity, uh, the crown is the great guardian of posterity in the course of doing all this. In part, that's about 
the position of kings or queens vis-a-vis their subjects and who's looking out for the long term. But in, in that case, they really are sophisticated. They're trying to figure out how to get what they want in terms of management strategies that go with that. But despite all that, and I think this is something that just needs to be emphasized, the mere presence of those things does not produce outcomes that we might view as socially as socially or politically desirable. And that's a huge challenge for how people think about environmental thought in the present. And I, I think, I hope that will be one of the useful takeaways for people who are not very foolishly, intrinsically interested in the 16th or 17th centuries, I hope one of the takeaways would be to see here that sort of awareness, a desire to preserve something for the future, concerns about beauty, active management strategies. They don't necessarily automatically result in socially or politically desirable outcomes. In part, that's why I emphasize politics so much in the book, because they're managing to achieve their desired outcomes, which are even at the time, controversial, depending on who you're asking. And I think for many of us now, mere managing for the future doesn't necessarily yield what we want. When Simply Safe Home Security's founders, Chad and Eleanor Lawrence, designed their first security system in their kitchen, they did it for a very personal reason. Their friends had just had their home broken into. They were struggling to find a security system that was simple to set up and would make them feel safe again. Look, I know that a security system that's too hard to set up and use is no good to you, but Simply Safe is so easy to install that peace of mind is only a few minutes away. Making people feel safe is what Simply Safe has been doing ever since that moment 15 years ago. A passion to protect people not only drives every engineering detail in its products, but it motivates every interaction with its customers. And the thing is, Simply Safe just makes it so easy. It takes about two minutes to customize a system on their website, simplysafe.com slash tides. SimplySafe has highly trained security experts ready whenever you need them. Whether that's during a fire, a burglary, a medical emergency, or even just when you're setting up the system, there's always someone there who has your back to keep you safe and to make sure that you feel safe. As my listener, you can save 20% on your SimplySafe security system and get your first month free when you sign up for interactive monitoring service. Just visit simplysafe.com slash tides to customize your system and start protecting your home and family. That's simplysafe.com slash tides. It was something that was really striking to me in reading this because there's no like idyllic human past where people were totally conscious of the limits of availability of resources. And they had this incredibly sustainable long-term strategy for dealing with it. And everybody agreed that this was what they were going to do. These things vary from place to place. They vary from group within society to group within society. It's something you talk about a lot is conflict over how these resources are supposed to be used. And it goes for early modern society. It goes for hunter-gatherers. That hunter-gatherers, sometimes they do think very long and hard about what resources they're going to exploit now with an eye toward next year, five years, 10 years, and some kind of undefined future. And sometimes hunter-gatherers just show up and kill all the animals, and then they move to the next place. There's no inborn human state where people are, are like hyper-aware and vigilant about making sure that resources don't exist. And so that means that there's no Edenic past for us to return to from the modern day and our wastefulness in the 21st century. Yeah. And I guess maybe one way I would modify that just slightly 
is to say, I think people are often quite concerned with how resources will be managed. Sometimes the fight is over what counts as a resource. Uh, and, and sometimes the fight is over whether or not people believe this thing to be scarce, which is something that applies to that specific thing, but might not actually carry over to other kinds of things. So hunt all the animals in an area might make perfect sense because they say, well, there's lots of other animals that we can get to pretty close by and it's not a huge deal. And also there's really great foraging around here. We have all of these other things to eat. And so we can kind of do this now, but then we're going to move on. And in my case that I'm looking at, some people say things like, well, there's a point in the life cycle of a tree in which it ages out of being useful timber some of the people who are clamoring to have it conserved are not thinking in sophisticated, you know, they want to let old trees rot and we want to chop them down, but then we want to protect young trees. So, I, I mean, it's not one saying like, waste carelessly, I don't care. And the others saying, no, please preserve, think of the future. In other cases, you have conflicting ideas about what's actually a resource or not. And I, I think that's really one of the huge challenges, and I hope one of the things that looking at the early modern period can be useful to bring to our debates in the present, uh, you know, there, there's quite a lot of talk about saying like, ah, well, if we can only use sort of environmental economic thinking to, to kind of price out resources, then the magic of markets can work and all this. Okay. Look at the huge fights over defining what a resource is in the past. And that's in a society in which quite a few people are able to exert pretty intense control over large numbers of other people. And then imagine the sort of fights we have going forward about how on earth we would define resources in a way that we think of as just, right? And that's a question a historian can't actually answer, right? I can tell you, and I, I hope that I have told people about the, the huge fights over defining what a resource is in different places where English people go in the 16th and 17th centuries. And, you know, this is, I, I know you've said it a ton, right? History doesn't teach lessons. But what history can do is give sort of context, but it can't say, oh, we should repeat this that they did, or we should avoid this that they did, right? It can tell us that defining a resource is something that is always going to be conflictual and can't just be naturalized. Uh, and we can't go back to some Eden, but then how we want to define it in the present. I mean, that's a question for us. That's one of the things that I, I thought was really interesting about the approach you took here was you use a style of analysis that you're calling political ecology. And so the idea that there are politics embedded in how we understand the environment, I thought at a really basic level, that was fascinating to me. I had not thought about it in those terms. It sounds obvious after you say it, but can you explain to me exactly what political ecology is? Yeah, so this is a concept that's come out of anthropology and out of geography. To a, that It's got its longest history there. But there's been a, a few historians who've picked it up and said, hey, let's think about this, particularly for the early modern period. Molly Warsh has written a wonderful book on pearls and an article on that that she's taken to really get at the concept. And after reading her work, I was like, yes, that's exactly the framework. I need to start thinking through this. So the, the general idea here is that efforts to explain, understand, and define the other-than-human world reflect 
politics within human societies. And that for something like a concept of scarcity, even something like defining what a tree is, what a wood is, what forests are, what landscapes are, that these are shaped by politics. Levels sort of large and small for what that politics is, right? Sometimes it's about the state or in some cases even factions, right? In the book, I talk about how under the Cromwellian regime, they're going to say, ah, well, it was the royalists who wasted the woods. And then afterwards in the restoration, John Evelyn is going to say it was those rotten Cromwellians who, who chopped down all the trees and are going to ruin things for posterity. So sometimes it's sort of high politics in that case, factions in a civil war. But in other case, it gets down to sort of micro politics of neighbor versus neighbor or landlord versus tenant, things like that. And the general idea behind that is when we're looking at conflicts that are environmental, when we're looking at how people are doing environmental thinking, that we need to bring human politics into our story just to understand what people are talking about, how they're defining it, and then the ways that they're trying to organize the use, preservation, or exploitation of the things that they're going to define as resources. So this brings us fairly directly to one of the major themes of your book, which is colonization overseas enterprises. How does wood scarcity get us to efforts at colonizing the new world? Yeah, so this is one of the things that I think is a sort of... (laughs) It was a little bit surprising, but it it makes a certain amount of sense. I went through and read quite a large number of promotional pamphlets for various colonization schemes and various plans for colonization. And I think some of the stories we're familiar with, right? We get mineral resources, we get inter-imperial competition, we get the desire to uh, kind of plant Protestant colonies. If we're talking about the English, we get fishing in some cases that pops out and just sort of this accidentally happens. A theme that's running through a lot of these is the woods that, oh, there are woods there. That's probably valuable. One of the great resources we'll find in this colony is lots of woods that can be turned to the following uses. And in a number of the pamphlets, they even say, well, In getting these other places, that's going to let us solve this problem at home. Is it a problem at home? Well, as far as colonial promoters are concerned, yes, it is absolutely a problem at home. As far as other people are concerned, no, this is not actually a problem. And then you have these fights. Should colonization happen? Should it not? That occasionally turn over whether or not there's an absence of trees in England. But there's this running theme that is sitting there in a lot of the promotional material and a lot of the early plans for how to profit from or exploit colonies in a lot of the proposals to the crown specifically to say, why is it a good idea to do this? To say, well, there's lots of trees there and that's going to let us solve problems. And this starts really early on in English colonial schemes. So in Ireland in the 1580s, they're saying, oh, we can address the scarcity of the Navy. And the scarcity at that point that they're discussing is relatively recent. For the Roanoke, the failed colony at Roanoke, and then the first settlements along the James River, they're saying, ah, we can use this to address scarcities in various places. These colonial promoters are pretty clever 
where some of them are actually timing up these wood scarcity and that's why we need to colonize claims to line up with those anxiety-inducing surveys of trees in England. They essentially wait because a number of them are quite plugged in to what's happening in London or what the Crown is up to. And a survey comes back where the state's trying to figure out exactly how much stuff do we have. And they come back with a mild panic about how much stuff they have. And they say, well, if we're running out here, we've got a a very handy solution that my colonial project can solve for you. And on the one hand, this makes sense to us, right? We have a story about European colonization broadly writ in which Europeans run out of stuff at home and then they go and grab more stuff elsewhere and bring it back. And I think that's a story that can be true in many senses and that if we look over multiple centuries is a story about extraction and return to Europe that is broadly true. But then when we narrow in, I think things start to get a little bit confusing or a little bit weird at times. So for all the promises that colonies would solve the problem of wood scarcity in England, it didn't happen. There are very few moments where those plans to solve a problem that, of course, not everyone agrees is a problem, actually works out the way that people want it to. This is something you point this out. It's like as much as they're looking at trying to build timber industries in the colonies, there's very little timber shipped back to England for a long time, for like a century after the initial founding of these colonies. Yeah. I mean, and what is shipped back in many cases is really remarkable. So Virginia has a brief moment where they ship back wainscoting or, or where they ship back bits of sassafras um, and they flood the market with sassafras and then it tanks the price. It all goes terribly. But a number of the more successful woodland enterprises end up being things like dye woods, luxury woods like cedar that's going to be shipped from Bermuda in particular that ends up adorning either a few churches or becoming cabinetry or things like that. And then probably the most successful thing that's going to be shipped around is what what are called pipe staves or barrel staves. And, and just to say what this is, these are the boards that are used to make barrels that other stuff is put in and then is going to be wrapped with an iron band by a cooper. Some of the most successful woodland industries are, are essentially packaging. And that's not what's being envisioned by in some of these huge proposals where they're saying, we'll build ships, we'll get masts, we'll get ship timber. Occasionally they do. New England in particular has some very large trees that come back as masts. But even there, there are times where the Navy says, well, we need masts, but this one, it's too big. We don't really know what to do with it. Because it's so big, it's really expensive. So we can't cut it up into smaller things because that would be a terrible waste. It really poses these huge problems. And despite spending about 60 years saying, hey, this is going to solve it. We really need this. This is really important. These colonies are going to solve our problems. They really don't solve this 
alleged problem of scarcity in the way that quite a few people at the time want them to. This is something that's really fascinating to me. And it, it like in large part, cause it ties into a lot of stuff that I've been thinking a lot about over the past few years is like how hard it was to make money off of these early colonial enterprises that like everybody wanted a windfall and everybody wanted to get rich and there are stockholders that need to get paid off or investors that need to get paid off. And the people who are going into it are thinking this is a great way to make a quick buck, but these people go broke. Like there, it's so hard to make money off these ventures. The cost of shipping and the risk of shipping over these incredibly long distances is like the Portuguese lose tons of ships coming back from India. Like half the ships don't make it. There are storms in the Atlantic. It's a hard place to sail. There are unknown coasts. There's the risk of disease. And then, I mean, just like the bulk costs of shipping goods, like raw timber from New England to England is like not worth it, especially when the Baltic is right there. So there are alternative sources of resources. It's hard to make these enterprises pay in any meaningful way. And that ties into kind of a a broader question slash observation I have, which is, I think it's easy for us to forget that like these enterprises were not destined to succeed. It's not like from the moment that colonists showed up at Jamestown in 1609, ah, we're going to have English colonies covering the Eastern seaboard of what's now the United States. Like that was not a foregone conclusion. Yeah. And, and I think particularly for colonialism and and for colonization, teleology, this idea that the present in some way kind of necessitates that the past was going to work out, it's it's always really tough to battle against as a historian, right? We know what comes next. And, And so it becomes really easy to sort of tell a story in which like, and then it all leads to this thing that we know is going to happen. Congratulations. I'll tell you in some charming or cute way about how we got from here to there. And and we'll all be really thrilled with the result. I realized in part that I'm a historian really interested in in things that don't work or in failure, (laughs) Uh, particularly as I was just sitting uh, in an archive and, and just trying to think about stuff that didn't work recently for another project. But Here, I I mean, I think it's so important that we keep these things in play and that we also understand exactly how much room for alternatives existed at the time, how much conflict there was. You know, a story about sort of Europe inevitably spreading or England inevitably spreading, I, I think that removes a lot of moments in which people make very specific decisions that lead to a colony sticking around rather than going away, or that lead people to say, well, no, we should keep doing this thing, or to say, well, the use of enslaved labor is the way that we're going to solve problem X. Uh, So one example I point to in the chapter in Barbados, where they're intensely aware of what they view as environmental limits. They're not unaware of what's happening, right? They know that they're changing the landscape. They know that that has consequences for soil. And one of the things that people write in the 17th century is essentially that, oh, well, we've figured out a labor system that will allow us to solve this problem that we see emerging in part because it allows for forms of labor discipline and exploitation that they otherwise couldn't get away with or that they otherwise wouldn't be able to do if they had a different labor regime. So I think in a lot of these cases, by allowing failure to sit there as a possibility, it's really important because it allows us to see why what happened next did happen and all of the many chances in which things could have gone 
really dramatically differently. I, I always struggle with this because of, I mean, causality, first of all, because causality is hard and you have to balance the the kinds of structural forces that point toward particular outcomes with the contingency of the moment and individual agency, right? So all of those things have to be in any compelling story about why something happened. But being a historian and specializing in a particular period means that you are much more intensely aware of the contingency and the array of different things that might have happened. And I mean, with regard to slavery, it's like there were lots of people who weren't fans of slavery and thought it was a bad idea and didn't want to do it at pretty much every point. And in the very beginning, it just so happens that a lot of the people who are going to the new world in the late 15th and early 16th century are coming out of a maritime subculture in which slavery is a common way of making enterprises pay. And so naturally they turn to it because that's what they know. But it was not a given that that was what had to happen if other people had been involved in these ventures or a king had put his foot down or a queen had put her foot down and said, no, this is not how we're going to do this. But that's an imaginable future that we should probably take account of instead of turning people into the past into automata who were just destined to do this thing. Yeah, yeah. And I think that balance between sort of structure and those moments of kind of decision points is really key. I mean, as I think will kind of comes out in the book, I hope, I'm quite willing to have there be big structures that are pushing people in a number of cases. I mean, to some degree, a number of the failures emerge because once an idea gets planted or once a system gets planted, people really struggle to get away from it, even when it proves bad over and over again. Uh, so, they, I mean, they stick with stuff. One of the really odd things, I thought about this, it's like, oh, I'm writing a book that ends almost in the same place as it began, in which someone is looking out from England and saying, huh, I wonder what we should do about trees in all these colonies. <laughs> You know, he's writing in the 1660s, and there are people in the 1580s who are also saying, ah, you know, maybe we have wood scarcity in England. I wonder if colonies could do something about that. There's just a shocking continuity, despite at that point, several decades of actually experimenting with this. But in, in part, it's that some of the fundamental conflicts there about how you exactly define a scarcity, what it means, some of the politics of what role the state should take. Should England have an empire? What kind of empire should it be? Who should pay for particular things? Is it okay to get stuff from other people who are not English or maybe ones who are not Protestants? All of these debates about how exactly you should meet needs are really sticky and they stick around despite some pretty dramatic political changes in a number of these cases. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. If there's something preventing you from achieving your goals or interfering with your happiness, you're not alone, not by a long shot. And you're not stuck without options either. Therapy really can help, trust me on that. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional therapy done securely online. There's a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your therapist. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. 
BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit BetterHelp.com Tides. That's BetterHelp and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional therapists in all 50 states. This is a special offer for Tides of History listeners. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com Tides. The last thing I want is to get hacked, to have my data stolen. As my kids get older and I see the day when they start spending their time online coming, I worry about their privacy too. Your data has never been more valuable or vulnerable, and that's why protecting it has never been more important. NordVPN offers a great solution to that problem. NordVPN blocks malware sites and botnet controls. It blocks phishing sites automatically, and it has next-generation encryption. If you travel a lot and find yourself using airport or restaurant or hotel Wi-Fi, you should absolutely be using NordVPN because hackers love to get into your system through those public networks. NordVPN is so easy to use. One click and you're using a server in another country. They offer more than 5,400 servers in 58 countries. If you want to avoid geographic restrictions on content, NordVPN allows you to do that. It's also blazing fast. Speed tests confirm NordVPN is the fastest VPN out there. On top of the privacy stuff I mentioned, I really like watching history and archaeology documentaries. A lot of them aren't available via streaming in the U.S. With one click, I'm on a server somewhere else, and I can watch exactly the documentary I'm looking for on its native site. Boom, it's that easy. Go to nordvpn.com tides and use the code tides to get a two-year plan plus a bonus gift with a huge discount. That's nordvpn.com tides and use the code tides. So this is something I'm curious about. You talk about these continuities, right? In what ways are these ideas about scarcity specific to the early modern period and the period of time that we're talking about here? To what extent do they differ from ideas that we see earlier in the Middle Ages? How much is about a continuity with the past and how much is like really specific to the sets of circumstances we see in the late 16th, early 17th century? So I think there's a real collision between sort of new and emerging ideas about how to deal with woods in particular, as well as things when it's meant to serve the interests of, say, the Navy, as well as some deep continuities. So in particular, when I look at England in the book, there are ideas about common rights, about rights to fuel and building materials that were forged long ago and that stick around and are really crucial context through this period Yes, they're being challenged by things like enclosure, by new and more assertive landlords who are trying to get more and more out of what they own. But a number of those moments of conflict and the way in which smaller tenants, cottagers, even other gentry, things like that, try to defend their right to certain wooded resources, those are some deep continuities. Some technological changes do kind of change the story a bit. So the way that the English iron industry kind of booms in the late 16th and then through the 17th century ends up changing things quite a bit. Uh, It's not that there wasn't iron production beforehand, there was, but there's some technological shifts that allow for greater consumption. There's increased production. All those things do change the relationship with woods. 
in the colonies, you start to see some dramatic shifts in how people are going to manage woods. At the same time, there's a lot of ideas that stick around for a long time there. And this is one of the things I try to bring out when writing about Barbados. When you look at the way that people there, even as they're evolving a really distinctive political economic system, right? Even as the plantation complex and the sugar slavery complex is beginning to become dominant, there's still people putting lease conditions in to preserve trees in ways that would make complete sense to someone living in a dramatically different world, living a few centuries earlier, that a lease condition like that might make total sense. And someone in Ireland, even 20 years earlier, might say, oh, yeah, that's of course, that's how you would prevent someone from cutting down your trees. So certain things like property regimes, even as they're changing in some really dramatic ways, there are these continuities that stick around. Where I think you start to see something new emerging and it shows up a bit at the end of the book is you begin to have people in colonies who are trying to articulate a vision for how they're going to deal with woods that is not necessarily centered on the interests of England. And people in England, weirdly, almost don't respond to that at all, right? There's a reason that John Evelyn's sitting there and saying like, well, if we we do any of this stuff in the new world, it's just because they have too many trees and they they don't know what to do with them. And it helps them to cut it down because then they can put in farms and stuff. And that's totally out of sync with what people had actually been doing in which they're often quite careful managing woods, as I show in literally the rest of the book. In England, time stands still to a certain degree in the way resource thinking works. I mean, yes, Evelyn talks about the Civil War, but Cromwell is going to manage forests in ways that harken back to older problems from the 16th century. And then Evelyn's going to manage it in ways that go back to Cromwell or similar things like that, a number of which really only start to shift with the Tudors and sort of changes in the bureaucratic state. But even then, old structures like courts where they rule on who has wasted a tree or whether you can cut browse wood, which is just fodder for deer to eat. These older ideas about how a resource should be managed and how a landscape should be managed stick around even as there are some pretty dramatic changes. One of the things that's striking is that these wooded areas that people are really concerned about, these are not natural landscapes in the sense that we think of pristine nature. They are managed woodlands. They are areas that people have been using and working for a really long time. When English colonists arrive in North America, they are arriving in woodlands that have been managed for millennia by the indigenous inhabitants of the Atlantic coast. It's not like there's some vision of a pristine wilderness here that's untouched by human hands. Like These are all anthropogenic environments. These are all made by people. Is there any such thing as a natural environment anywhere that people have been living? Is there any way of kind of like, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know that there's an answer to that, but I'm curious as to what you think. Is it even a useful category to think with? So I, I don't really think that the idea of untouched is ever a, a particularly useful category. So even in places like Bermuda and in Barbados, when the English arrive, there are not current present inhabitants, according to the English. At the same time, those are places that have been shaped by human activity. So 
in Bermuda, the English find a ton of pigs and they say, like, wow, this is wonderful. They swam ashore from Spanish wrecks or may have been intentionally dropped off. There's some debate about how exactly they got there. But those pigs got there for a reason. And in the absence of people living there, pigs had eaten certain kinds of plants. Essentially, pigs had performed a selection pressure that reshaped the wooded landscape of a place that to the English was a wild and virgin forest or something like that. In Barbados, there are specific tree species that are there that are unquestionably the result of indigenous peoples having lived there. So things like what's called the poison tree, which was used by indigenous peoples in fishing because you can poison tip your arrow to make sure if you get the fish, you get it. Those are there. So you see tree species that are introduced in that case from the American mainland in what is at that moment an uninhabited island that had been previously inhabited. So yeah, even even in places where there were not presently people, if we look hard and if we think carefully, there are lots of signs about the ways in which humans have shaped these. And once we take into account the way that humans have shaped those places, I think that's one of the reasons we need to focus so much on how politics is constructing nature in a number of these cases. And in in some ways, it's easy to see how politics does it. Sometimes people are pretty transparent. In other cases, it's a bit harder. I mean, with the stuff you're working on right now, you know, they're not always so clear about exactly what the internal political conflicts are that led to selecting for certain things or not other things. But I think that we really should think hard about the political choices that are shaping it at various moments and then the ways in which those shifting or conflicting political choices are going to construct land, including by constructing land as untouched. The English are so fond whenever they go someplace that they want to take of figuring out how to explain that it's actually mostly empty, if not entirely empty. I mean, in Ireland, Edmund Spencer talking about the aftermath of a revolt has this horrifying passage about how what a great strategy it was. We starved a ton of people to death in the course of putting down this rebellion And one of the benefits of that is now there's all this space and not really anyone to occupy it. And of course, the English are going to go to Virginia and they're going to say, well, yeah, there's a lot of people here, but it's not that many people here. And there's really a lot of space. And a lot of it doesn't look like anyone's done anything. So why why don't we just take it and do stuff with it, right? They construct this idea of emptiness. One of the things I hope I show here is some of the specific ways in which particular tree species, particular conceptions of what woods look like is used to construct a very particular idea of untouched nature that is going to be politically useful. I mean, they have battles in Bermuda about whether or not it's Eden or whether or not it's the promised land. And I know that it can seem like biblical hair splitting. But part of the reason that they care so much at that point in time is that, well, if it's the promised land, the fall has already happened and people need to work. And they're very adamant that people need to work. And like all the people writing this are like, well, it's it's very important that people come here and work extremely hard, particularly in the ways that I, the person writing this document, want them to, right? There's a case in which they say, what kind of perfect place is it? It can't be the Garden of Eden because then we could just live in idle. It needs to be a place that even if it feels kind of untouched, 
is post-lapsarian. That way we can impose a labor regime that we like. And I, I think that idea about how we're going to use the precise politics of what exactly untouched or lightly touched or not many people or just some people or natural is in a number of these cases, there's a ton of politics behind it that's always going to be really historically specific. And that, I hope, is one of the takeaways of this book for historians, even if you're not working on this period. You know, if someone says it's natural, immediately start digging. It's fascinating to think about the variability of these things and the various ways in which people have and and can fight and disagree over what a resource is, whether it's scarce or not, the ends to which they want to put that resource. I was really struck by that. And I think that it has much broader application. It's a good reminder that like people fight about stuff all the time, that we have such a tendency to flatten out the past and make things seem inevitable whether it's because we're actively trying to simplify or because we don't have the kinds of sources that would allow us to see the conflict that must have existed. I thought that this was a really good reminder that people in the past were not monoliths. They fought and argued and disagreed, even about something as seemingly natural as a wooded area. On that note, Keith, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. All the best of luck with the book. I really enjoyed it. I felt I learned a lot from it. And it's nice to see a project that you've been working on for so long come to a fruitful conclusion. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And of course, congrats on yours as well. It is equally nice to see something that I know you've been working on for a long time turn into uh, a really beautiful physical object, that weirdest of things. An actual physical object. I cannot believe it. We will have you back on again soon. You are going to retain your title of the most frequent tides guest uh, against all challengers. You are king of that particular mountain. Keith Plymers, thank you again. Thanks. Until then, thanks for joining me. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow Tides of History on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the Wondery app, or wherever you're listening right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app to listen early and ad-free. If you've been enjoying the show, I'd really appreciate it if you left us a five-star rating and a review. Be sure and hit me up if you'd like to chat about anything we've talked about on Tides or something you'd like to see. You can find me on Twitter at Patrick underscore Wyman, on Facebook at Patrick Wyman MMA, or on Instagram at Wyman underscore Patrick. I write on a variety of topics at patrickwyman.substack.com, including prehistory. Thanks so much for joining me today. Be sure and hit me up if you'd like to chat about anything we've talked about on Tides or something you'd like to see. You can find me on Twitter at Patrick underscore Wyman or on Facebook at Patrick Wyman MMA or on Instagram at Wyman underscore Patrick. I write on other topics at patrickwyman.substack.com. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe to Tides of History on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the Wondery app, or wherever you're listening right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app to listen early and ad-free. If you've been enjoying the show, I'd really appreciate it if you left a five-star rating and a review. Tides of History is written and narrated by me, Patrick Wyman. The sound engineer is Sergio Enriquez. Tides of History is produced by Morgan Jaffe. From Wondery, the executive producers are Jenny Lower Beckman and Marshall Louie. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, from Wondery, this has been Tides of History. First, there was Dr. Dunch, 
a doctor who killed or maimed 33 patients in Texas. Then there was Dr. Fata, a doctor who poisoned over 500 patients in Michigan. And now there's a new doctor death. Dr. Paolo Macchiarini, the miracle man. Wondery's groundbreaking podcast, Dr. Death, is back for a third season with a story of trust, betrayal, and miracles. Follow Dr. Death Season 3, Miracle Man, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. Or you can listen early and ad-free by subscribing to Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts or in the Wondery app.